Good evening and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. Barry, I don't know about you, but I had the most intense day ever. Just about made it here with my wits about me today. How was yours? Dude, way more chill than yours, what <laughs> sounds like. I'm really glad to see you here. I know it's been a crazy, crazy day, but good to have you here. And let's chat about some interesting stuff. Welcome. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad. It's actually insane how quickly these weeks go by, Barry. It, it, they just fly by. We record one on a Monday night and, you know, by the time we hit the weekend again, it's just reset again. Uh, insane, insane phenomenon, I suppose. No, it's crazy, especially during these quarantine times where things aren't quite normal. You're not moving around town. Things seem to fly past. And the fact that we're halfway through 2020, Chad, just <laughs> blows my mind. It's insane. Can't believe that. Well, let's get into our episode. Be our guest, be our guest, put our podcast to the test. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest. Damn, I love that jingle, Chad. <laughs> Yes, I love that jingle. What a what a winner. What a winner. Absolutely. I never thought I'd hear it three times within, I suppose, the course of a month. And we've got our third guest today. Uh, very, very excited to hear her. I'm pretty sure every single person listening has loads to learn um, in the all so important topic that we're discussing today. Barry, why don't you give her a nice introduction? Definitely. Tonight, we have the wonderful Simone Poppleton on, on the podcast. And she is a registered counselor by profession and a connection coach at heart. So we're going to be chatting about relationships today and that's something like Chad says we could all use a little bit of work on. She graduated with a first class master's from the University of Cambridge in amazing. social and developmental psychology so amazing academic pedigree and she now runs her own private practice here in Johannesburg. She spends her time working with couples and individuals to help them experience rich deep connection in their relationships and she's also a gifted storyteller which we love here on Across the Pond. Yeah. She blogs, she does podcasts, she does lots of workshops and lots of online storytelling. So she really is a force to be reckoned with and we are really excited to have her so Simone, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Barry. Thank you, Chad. I'm so excited to be here this evening. I'm just excited to share the space with you. You guys are awesome and you're doing such great work. So it's really a privilege. Thank you. Thanks so much. I think relationships is one of those things where I, Chad, Chad's doing quite well, it seems. I'm not doing as well as I would like. And I think what, what I really like about your work, Simone, is that I've been following your stuff for a while and a lot of your work is with women. So a lot of your work is kind of helping empower women, working with women to really be, become the people they need to be and kind of drive those things. And I feel like... The men also need a little bit of help here. I think a lot of the men need to understand how to how to really empower the women in their lives and kind of move forward and, and really build powerful, deep, meaningful relationships. So I'm really excited about this one. And I wanted to start just by chatting a little bit through your background. Why did you choose to come into this kind of world? Relationships is a very difficult place to be sometimes. Why did you choose to come into this kind of sphere? And what has been your journey so far? Oh, I love this work. It, it really is my heart's work. I'm incredibly passionate about it. Um, I think it was a journey to get to this point. Um, I started quite big picture, you know, wanted to work in the psychology field um, for kind of the latter part of my life. Um, and, and then it was the journey. I went to Cambridge and I was really introduced to the world of social developmental psychology. I did um, an internship program in the US for six, uh, six weeks. Mm -hmm. And that was about mm -hmm. family therapy. And as I started to piece together all of um, these different parts of psychology, the more I fell in love with just working with 
couples and working with relationships. I think we're incredibly relational, social beings. I think we were created that way. So for me to be able to work in that sphere feels like I'm working really with the building blocks of, you know, us as people. Um, and I'm fascinated with relationships. I've been in my own, you know, long-term marriage now, but relationship with my high school sweetheart. So it feels like something so core to who I am. I love being in relationship with other people. So it's been, it's been a process to get to this point of actually um, specializing. But I think it really came from a recognition that, you know, we can, we can do lots of counseling in different fields and many of us are doing incredible work, but I wanted to be very specific and I wanted to know what I love to do and to create a safe space for people to talk through their relational issues. And initially I thought it was going to take me a bit of time to, uh, you know, build up my client base and, and make a name for myself being quite specialized. But I think that every single one of us find ourselves in wonderful and challenging relationships. We're wounded and healed in our relationships. So I actually have been incredibly blessed and grateful to be doing the work that I love and to really have hit the ground running from the first day I opened my practice. Um, yeah, and it's been a great way to build um, relationships with other people like this. I get to do this work. <laughs> Absolutely. Amazing, and, amazing. Uh, yeah, we're really, really happy to have you. Um, I Like I said just before the beginning of the call, I've actually been following you on Instagram for some time. And like you mentioned, that relationship of your own has certainly been inspirational to watch from, from anyone on the outside. Um, it definitely seems like, you know, one of those that every single person uh, should aspire to. And you guys even got some awards on your wedding as well. Yes, I said I've been dreaming about my wedding days since I came out of the womb um, and even more so when I met Drew so yes we met when we were 16 and so it yeah it is that high school sweetheart story that I love our story I'm passionate about our story and I love to share with people I'll probably yeah. stop telling it and um, so thank you for that encouragement and yeah thank you both for following me in that space it's a space that I always wanted to be very authentic in so yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful that's the message Fantastic. Let's dig in, Simi. Let's dig into the real meat of the issue. Right now, we are all stuck in quarantine. A lot of us are locked up with our significant others for a much longer period than we used to be locked up with them for. And I've been chatting to a lot of people, and it seems to kind of be make or break. In some instances, it's made people like twice as strong and the relationship twice as strong. In other cases, it's caused a lot of stress and kind of shown some cracks in the system maybe. So maybe from some of the stories you've been chatting about in your experience, how have you found lockdown? And uh, what are you seeing from the couples that you work with when it comes to how do you deal when you're in, your, in each other's space for so much? It has been an interesting time. I mean, it's unprecedented. It's just a time of immense change and uncertainty. Um, personally, I've found that it's really gifted us with time. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think that both of us are, you know, quite yeah. ambitious in our different careers and we work very long hours and we just realized we weren't getting enough time together. Um, and so to actually have this opportunity to just be together and not really have anywhere else to go or be able to do other things. And, and obviously there's things that we miss, but the real gift has been able to be together. And so that's been a, a real blessing that I can still work from home and so can through. And we've been able to spend um, really quality, meaningful, intentional time together in just the simpleness of that, you know, enjoying our home really together. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been uh, the message yeah. for many couples. I definitely think it's been a, a make or break for some in terms of it being challenging and bringing, you know, flaring up 
stuff in the relationship space. But I must say that for the most part, I found that couples finally got the thing they've been longing for the most, which is that quality time together. Um, I think the biggest challenge was juggling the different roles in one space. So, you know, mom, dad, husband, wife, you know, professionals, whatever career you have. Um, was definitely difficult. And I, I think my advice and recommendation was always to demarcate space in the home. You know, we do yeah. live in a smaller space ourselves and yeah. we needed to find spaces that represented different parts of our identity. And when you know the laptop closed in one particular part of the house, that was the counselor cap off and I was able to move back into the wife mode. Um, so that was my way of really demarcating boundaries in a small space. And I recommended that actually for all couples. I think that's a, t a key point there because one of the things I wanted to discuss was obviously living in London. Um, everyone here has smaller places. Now, I'm fortunate enough to have this kind of second room that I can escape to and, you know, like you said, have your, your personal time as well so that I can actually enjoy uh, that together time that we do get, which we're really lucky to have right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think those are some, some really good guidelines that you've given uh, over there. In terms of those who are maybe struggling a little bit more um, and, you know, who are actually getting on each other's nerves, um, aside from setting boundaries in terms of space what kind of other tips or guidelines would you have for them come and see me <laughs> um, yes i think you know there are some extreme cases where there's just you know you've missed each other for so long before lockdown that this yeah. really only you know amplified that um and sometimes there is a need for professional assistance just to sure. help to cross that bridge again um but for other couples i think that it is a sense of really inviting a little bit more communication into that space and um, being able to sit down and actually talk through you know almost normalizing this is difficult there is yeah. change we are struggling or we have anxiety how can we manage this in a way that serves us as individuals and as a couple so I think the greatest challenge that couples are facing at the moment is how do we exist as both individuals and as a unit or collective in the same space and really trying to, you know, we juggle that every, you know, in all aspects of our life normally, this is just the kind of um, more intense version of that. Yeah. And so we're trying to create still mystery and distance in our relationships, um, you know, but also having that kind of closeness and intimacy. And so it really is kind of navigating um, the and, you know, how am I the self and the other in one yep. space? And the most effective way to do that is to talk about it. Absolutely. I mean, it was a bit of a joke that, you know, in terms of come see me, but I think that's an important thing as well, because I think for a long time, um, society, you know, in back in the day, there's been a bit of a stigma about, you know, getting counseling. And I suppose I love the fact that you focus on couples rather than just being like a marriage counselor. So what, what is that change that you're seeing in the space and why is it becoming more um, okay and, you know, more necessary for a lot more people to go and see a counselor? Yeah, I think that there is this move there, you know, towards it just being more socially acceptable. Yeah. Um, and I'm so happy about that because I've always said that I'm not a problem-focused therapist. I'm very yeah. much about the process, about connection. So whether you're in a great space or in a really difficult space, you know, my space is for you because it's not just for couples who are having difficulty. It's couples who just want to deepen what's already working for them as well. Yeah. Um, and what I really appreciate, Barry, what you were saying is I absolutely love working with women for sure. I've tried to create a safe space for them, but 
Um, I actually find that I have many individuals who are male who come for therapy and I'm so encouraged by that. There's just this real desire in them for change and for growth. And, and it's so fulfilling when you see them take the tools that they're learning and really putting that into their relationships or into their individual lives. I mean, I'm so thrilled that people are actually seeing counseling as something valuable, no matter what season of life you're in, whether you just got married, you know, whether you're a veteran in it. Um, I think there's really something valuable about self-improvement. You know, how can I be better tomorrow than I am today? Sure. I think it's a great trend. It's really heartening to hear that. I think that I've had a lot of conversations. We chatted a lot about mental health on this podcast and about how men in general struggle to share emotional things or struggle to share when they're having difficulty or when they're going through difficult times. And uh, this idea of going to a third party who's objective and kind of look at it with a new set of eyes and give you some different things to think about, maybe some exercises to work through, that is incredibly valuable. And I think for all of us, all, all our listeners, all of us going through difficult things, I think everyone's had a, had a tough lockdown in some way. Yeah. And uh, it's talking to people in these sorts of scenarios, like tra trained professionals who know what they're talking about and know how to help is really, is really super powerful. And if we can get past that stigma, get more people to be willing to take that first step, I think they'll be able to see the value that you're speaking about and hopefully we'll start to change some of their lives. So I'm very heartened to hear that and I hope we see more and more people go to these sorts of things Absolutely. because it is so valuable, right? As you say, we are relational-based beings. We are very, very social and our social relationships really dictate how we experience the world. You can have the most amazing career, the most you can have all the money in the bank, you can have the cars and the house and all of that good stuff, but if your relationships aren't strong, you're simply not going to be leading a fulfilling, fulfilling life. And so I'm, I'm really heartened by that. And I'd like to encourage everyone listening that this is a really important avenue if you are struggling right now. Simi, talking about some of these things, and you've, you've obviously seen the good, bad, and the ugly when it comes to these stuff. What are some of the common mistakes you're seeing in couples that are making today? So like the, the major mistakes that keep coming up again and again and again. I think something that you're really speaking into, Barry, was something that Esther Perel speaks about. She says the quality of our life is based on the quality of our relationships. Um, and so I think that the thing that couples are really struggling with is time. I think that we have um, incredibly fast paced lives. We have so many demands in our time. And I think that that's the, the problem that most couples are facing when they come into my room is not that there isn't a desire to be intimate or connected or close to one another, but just not enough time. And there are so many competing demands. And unfortunately, the relationship often takes that back seat when, you know, whether it's parenting, whether it's work, whether it's other family responsibilities. And now you're adding financial pressures in, in our lockdown and quarantine times. So I think that a huge challenge um, in our 21st century, effectively, is just the lack of time the couples have to spend together. Um, and as a result of that, it means that they're not able to um, work through challenges that they're facing or sit down and have those meaningful you know, conversations or grow their friendship. I think that yeah. friendship is such a key part of, um, of our relationships, of our coupleships, and a sense of being able to actually have time to do shared activities together. That's what builds things like friendship. So it's always going back to that element for me. And, and I think that's why I speak to it being so valuable for Drew and I is that it has just been this gift of time. And not that there was never this willingness, but just, you know, mm. in your schedule, how do you, you can't create more time. And it becomes quite frustrating for couples who so desire and more depth to their relationships. 
Absolutely, and an ever, ever so important uh, thing that time. In terms of how you've adapted to this quarantine time, have you started taking consultations on Zoom and, and how has that been going? Do you feel as connected with your clients? That's such a good question. Um, so before lockdown started, I was already doing online sessions um, yeah. with just some clients overseas. And, and so it was a really seamless process to just convert those that were willing to come onto online and, and to use Zoom. And I'm incredibly grateful for a platform like this. Firstly, we're yeah. meeting this way and I love it. I've always valued that about, you know, your relationship is that you're meeting across the pond. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's really cool. And, and in terms of my work, I'm very grateful that so many clients entrusted me to yeah. still maintain and hold that safe space for them, you know, in this platform. It is difficult because we're inviting, you know, essentially they're inviting me into their intimate spaces, their home, and I'm inviting them into mine. And so just maintaining some of those boundaries became very important. But I'm really, really grateful that many clients were able and um, willing to really come online onto Zoom. And I've continued counseling that way. Um, some people prefer um, in-person sessions. And so I'll do a phased approach just to, you know, re-invite yeah. that into my work. Um, but in terms of connection, you know, it's funny how technology works. You know, before, you know, coronavirus, we would have said that we've never been more disconnected, you know, because of our technology, people can't put their phones down. That's, you know, a huge challenge that couples were facing is spending so much time on their phones. Yeah. And yet now it's the, really the only thing that connects us to people outside of our home space. Um, and so that's been a very interesting dynamic is, is obviously being in my home space, doing all of my work on my cell phone. Um, and that for Drew and I has been something to navigate because now mm -hmm. all we do is stare at a phone all day and we're a laptop all day. Um, and how do we switch off from that mode back into kind of real life and connect with the people still within your home? So I think there's still those challenges there. But for the most part, in terms of my counseling, I hope that I've still managed to create a space that felt the same as in person. Yeah. I tried to be the same as I would be in person. Um, obviously, there's some challenges, but for the most part, I found that it's been quite seamless. That's actually a perfect segue to the question I wanted to ask next, and that's about the impact of the smartphone. I think the smartphone has come into all of our lives, and it's, it's stealing attention and focus and time from us every single moment of the day. And uh, what we've chatted offline, Samir, is about the, the value of like tradition and ritual to try and win back some of that time between your between your, your significant other. And creating rituals and traditions where you can put the phone away for a little bit and do something, a shared activity of, of some sort. Can you talk to that and how, how valuable those rituals are when you're trying to create time for that significant other in a very, very pressurized environment? Absolutely. Um, so there was this quote that I really loved. It's from um, Vincent van Gogh. And he says, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. And I think that's effectively what a tradition or ritual really is in a relationship. And when we think of rituals, especially, but even traditions, we think of big things, right? We're thinking birthdays, we're thinking Christmas and what's your, you know, the traditions that you implement in those spaces. But for me, it's really about the daily things. It's the small things often, just the little ways in which you connect and turn toward one another in your day. And that's really where there's so much power. Um, you know, Dr. Gottman, he's the father of psychology, and he's looked at a number of different uh, qualities that successful relationships have. And one of the main ones is that there is a shared meaning between them. And how do you create that? Through rituals. Just big and small things that you do to really say, I can count on you in this. And I love rituals because they create a sense of continuity. They create legacy, which I really appreciate. They create stability, predictability in a relationship. It is that sense of, I can count on you. 
And rituals is really where the sense of memory making is created and, and friendships are fostered. And if we think about probably each one of us, if we think about childhood experiences, there are key traditions or memories that we hold close to our heart, whether it is holidays or maybe it was something really special that was done, little notes in your lunchbox, you know, whatever it was, just little things that were done within your family space. And I think it's important as couples to actually look at what were the things that the traditions, the rituals that we had in our family home, what do we like about them? What didn't we like so much? And what are the new ones we want to create together? And I think there's so much value in just those small things often. Absolutely. I love that. And uh, I think you're so right, especially when it comes to this time uh, discussion that we we're having earlier. And especially now that we're all working from home, it's actually really, really quick and easy to, you know, just look across the, the table and, and say something nice, um, you know, instead of just using that excuse of, of time. Um, I, I think if we if we kind of look at all of those tiny little opportunities um, and value them a lot more than we currently do, um, we can definitely make a much bigger impact. While we were chatting earlier on about um, the importance of coming to see a counsellor, I wanted to really just probe and ask um, how much damage unresolved issues uh, can have in years in years time, so a decade later. Um, you know, what is your experience on, on that front? It is very destructive. Um, it actually makes my heart incredibly sore when I think of couples who've waited so long to seek yes. help and assistance possibly because of shame, because of stigma, or just because life got in the way. And that's often the thing that happens the most is that's why small things often is powerful because it's those little things that keep you connected day to day. And if you miss one, that's okay. But when you're missing them repeatedly day after day, you find that there's so much lost between you, that connection, that friendship. And so what ends up um, festering in that space is an immense amount of resentment. You find that for women, there's a sense of feeling unloved in that space. They often find that they're not seen or appreciated. Um, for men, it's this feeling of, of angst or irritability or not being valued or their opinions mattering. You know, this kind of the household could run without me feeling. And so over time, that really manifests itself with immense disconnection. But the way that I like to see it is disconnection is what we feel. And it's the best way to describe that feeling between a couple, that relational space is what I call it. But actually, we just lose access to our connection. And I think that's so much more positive and empowering to know that we might have just lost some access to connection, but with some tools, with intervention, we're able to reaccess that connection again. Yeah. Fantastic. That is a really, really good summary. And I think that it's 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 on all of us to really like work on these things going forward, right? I think that as life starts to go back to normal, we start to kind of lean back into our old habits and our old ways of doing things. It's important that we reflect on some of the learnings we've had during this process and all the time we spent with people in our homes and really carry that forward into starting new habits. I mean, you chatted about how difficult it is to change your habitual behavior. And it's those little things every single day that really make the difference. So if you were, if you were giving some advice to someone who's going to go from a lockdown situation where you're in each other's space 24-7 and you've enjoyed all of this time and then you're going to start trying to go back to what whatever normal life is post this pandemic. What advice would you give to someone to try and keep that magic and that time alive as things start to get more and more hectic? That's a really good question, Barry, because I think that's probably the thing that couples are finding um, a little bit anxiety-provoking is that reclimatizing to life a little bit back to what was normal, but yeah. some couples don't want to go back to that total normal anymore. You know, they've enjoyed this time. Yeah. And I think that there is something really important about being able to 
almost acknowledge that firstly, very much like you were saying, actually look at lockdown and, and assess it and review it and say, what did we like about it? You know, what are the, the boundaries that were almost imposed on us? Now those are going to be taken away. But what boundaries do we want to reinforce in our relationship going forward that work for us? You know, so whether it's, you know, special time together, date night, et cetera. So I think it's very important that couples sit down and actually assess that um, almost properly, formally almost is the best word to say. Um, and then there's something that Dr. Gottman refers to that I find really powerful that I often recommend for couples as well. And it's this idea of the um, five um, hour segment in a week. So in other words, spending five meaningful hours in your week is really powerful for maintaining that connection and that idea of the small things often. So the way that couples can incorporate these hours is through something like the way that you um, part ways in the morning. So whether it's a kiss, whether it's a hug, some kind of acknowledgement of you're leaving my space is really important. The next part would be something like a re, the way that you reunite. So at the end of the day, when whoever's coming back into that space, do you put down what you were doing and really welcome them back in? You know, do you acknowledge them when you come through the door? Or are you just so busy and frazzled by your day? But really taking time to see them and say, I'm back with you now. The other way is through affirmations and um, appreciations to a day of, I really appreciate this. I really admire this about you. Not just the things they do, but let's try also focus on who they are as people. I think that's a really simple, small thing, very much like you were saying, Chad, look across the table and say, oh, I saw that you did that today. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, through affection, that's a really, really great way to maintain that connection once people come back together. Of just a hug, a touch, it says, I see you, I'm here with you. And then some kind of weekly day to weekly activity. I think it's really important for couples to have some kind of shared project or activity that they're doing together. Um, and that just gives you something to look forward to. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You know, for Drew and I, it might be a run in the morning and then we grab a cup of coffee from Furnas and then we start our day. And it's so sweet and so simple, but it really just helps to, to set the tone effectively for the day. So it's just these small things that don't even take five minutes to just say, I see you. And it really helps that partnership to grow and that friendship to foster. That is amazing practical advice that I think every single person listening here is going to take a lot away from. One of the other things I wanted to just chat about is obviously as we have gone into this lockdown period, a lot of people have not been partnered up and uh, they've, I suppose, used this period um, to maybe even put more emphasis on that fact and, you know, maybe become a bit more anxious about it. Um, but for those who are still looking for, you know, real love and, and looking for their best kind of match, um, what kind of practical advice would you have for those people in, uh, you know, maybe not overthinking it too much, but uh, what kind of things should they be looking for um, in these kind of dating apps um, to, to really find their person? Yeah, that's been a very interesting aspect for many people who are single. Um, and I think what's really important about this is that it's just redefining the ways in which we get to know people. Um, I think that there is still so much value in just going for it you know I think we often hold ourselves back and we you know have this maybe idea or ideal of how we'd like to meet somebody and you know during lockdown that becomes a bit more difficult when we can't engage in social gatherings or go to restaurants and I don't think that that should get in the way of people meeting because there is something about this platform where you can only see kind of this much of a person <laughs> over zoom or you know whatever video 
it really requires you to listen quite intently because yeah. it does require a lot of energy in that space. It means you have to be a lot more thoughtful about your questions because you can't rely on, on your environment to, you know, foster conversation. Yeah. So it actually is a great opportunity to take away the, the trimmings, the extras of dates and just get to know the person across from the screen. And so for me, I think that it's actually been a great way for people to get to know the person, you know, not just the perfect date or, or all those other lovely parts of dates. Um, and then in terms of going on to dating apps, I think it's really about authenticity. Yeah. I think that you ultimately are going to track what you're putting out into that space. Um, and even across Zoom, there is something called the relational space. What I put into the space, you know, the person on the other side is going to respond to. So if you're looking for love and you're looking for something that's a bit more long lasting, then say that, you know, I think it's so important that people are owning that space uh, differently. Yeah. You know, Tinder gets a bad rep at times, but it's also about how people are engaging and using it. You know, so I think that it's really about you saying I'm showing up in that space authentically. Um, and you may find some people that aren't, but I'm sure that you find yeah. you will find that others will. It'll be a breath of fresh air. That is amazing. Simone, thank you so much for sharing this space with us tonight. We really appreciate you coming on the show. For everyone who's listening and might want to go check out Simone, she's amazing online. Her counseling stuff is all at rootedinlove.co.za and her personal blog and her podcast, you can find it at simonepoppleton.blog. I'll put all those links in the description below so you can just go and click on them. Please reach out to her if you do, if you are in need, if you are struggling right now, if, if something, if you feel like you need to talk to somebody, yeah. uh, she really is incredible what she does and it's it really is a super valuable thing earlier rather than later Simone thank you so much for coming on the show thank you both so much this was so much fun and I hope to do it again soon thank you absolutely absolutely loved having you and uh, yeah what a great great guest segment there Barry shall we move on to our next segment let's look at the week that was the week that was Alrighty, so let's return to our usual segments and fly through the rest of this episode. What happened this past week? Well, we've had a bit of a coronavirus update on the UK side. And actually, as we record this, it was yesterday on Sunday, where the UK reported their lowest number of daily deaths, uh, the number of 36 from COVID-19. Now, that's quite a big decrease from the numbers we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks. So certainly something um, pretty promising. Barry, you've also said that uh, there's been a bit of an adjustment on South Africa's side as well. Yeah. So I saw you put this on. It's amazing to see the UK doing what they're doing. I mean, if you look back a month or two ago, we were looking forward. We were very worried for the whole yep. of 2020. And it seems like those numbers have come down quite significantly. So that's amazing work. And hopefully it stays that way as things start to ease. Yep. On this side of the pond, we're also going through an easing process of that lockdown. And the numbers are going up. And uh, so there's a little bit of concern here in South Africa, yep. but they're not going up crazily just yet. Uh, on the same day, yesterday, Sunday, we had 57 deaths here in South Africa. Sure. Um, but most of them are kind of focused on the Western Cape. For some reason, the Western Cape is really our epicenter. A lot of people were expecting Gauteng to be the hardest hit because it's the densest city, it's got the most people, etc., etc. But the Western Cape has 73% of the total deaths sure. across the whole country. So that's the major problem spot at the moment, and all of them, or not all of the effort, but most of the effort is going on trying to control things there. But it's still nowhere near like what we saw in Italy or we saw in China or even in the States. So I think it's a decent job so far. Uh, we just thought we'd give a quick update here just to kind of remind us that this is still going on because it's, it is still going yep. on um, and it's one of those things where we'll have to wait and see what happens to the numbers as we start to ease things and we start to try and open up the economy again and get back to normal. 
Absolutely. And talking about that ease, we had that easing happen through in the UK this week. Nothing too significant, I'd say. I was on the phone to Barry when Boris was doing his announcement and the way he was kind of priming it by saying, you know, we've gone through each of the five tests and he was kind of laying down the case for what seemed like was going to be a really big ease. And these were some of his announcements. So from today, all shops are now allowed to open in the UK again. Really feels so strange that the shopping center down the road will now be open and, and really hoping for some footfall. And I even saw Boris tweeting out a message yesterday to say that he hoped people would feel confident enough to, to visit the shops. And so it's that real quick 180 degree in messaging that feels a little bit strange. Um, but obviously with the economic effect of all of this, um, it's, I suppose, um, was due to come for some time. Some of the other stuff that was announced is the idea of a social bubble. I told Barry about this and he kind of was like, what is a bubble and what does it mean? Um, and it's actually pretty simple, really. You establish this kind of virtual bubble with another household, but this can only be done if you are living by yourself in your own household and the bubble that you're extending with essentially is in the same case. And essentially under that circumstance, you can actually treat it as if you are living together. So you can visit each other as much as you'd like, you can sleep over, you can you know do whatever you'd like with, with that other person in your bubble. Um, and so for me, in terms of mental health benefits and in terms of actually just getting some social contact again, um, I think this was a fantastic, fantastic thing to do. Some of the other things that we've seen is uh, the introduction of zoos and uh, safaris again. Not sure how many of those they are in the UK, um, but those are open anyway, as well as some outdoor cinemas. Um, again, I think we're going to see a lot more of this in the next couple of months. Typically in summer, we, we see these outdoor cinemas, you see them in the parks where they throw up these massive big screens, um, and it's really such a great event for, for people to get involved in. And lastly was places of worship. So people who want to go by themselves into places of worship can. Group gatherings are still not allowed. Um, but Barry, quite a bit of easing there, I'd say. Maybe not as significant as we'd like, but I suppose if you look at it, it really does make living a little bit easier. Yeah, it's step by step, Chad, and slowly things start to come back online and we start to see what happens. And, and like you said, it feels a bit weird to be going back to shops and <laughs> events and all these sorts of things. We've, we've gotten quite used to this pandemic lockdown mindset and we have to wait and see if this changes people's habits. And like you say, if Boris can get people back in the shops and get them back to their normal habits yeah. while still maintaining that sort of healthy respect for the virus. I want to go back to that bubble quickly, Chad, because I've got a quite a funny story that I saw, and, and that's why I found it amusing when you said the social bubble. Right. I, I've got a story about a physical bubble. Okay. There was a, there was a person in the states, a guy who was standing on his balcony, and he saw a pretty girl on the balcony across the road from him, and what he decided was he was single. He wanted to take his chance. We've heard some on tonight about taking yep. your chance during this quarantine period. So what he did was he took his drone and he attached his phone numbers to his drone and flew the drone over to the girl, gave her his phone number, and then they started texting. They did a Zoom day. And the second day, Chad, was he put himself in an actual physical <laughs> bubble. So one of those things where you run around like a hamster yeah. and he went on a walk with this girl through the neighborhood, uh, social distancing, because he was inside the bubble. And so that's why I find it so amusing. We're now going to a virtual bubble and uh, hopefully back to normal life pretty soon. Absolutely. Well, at least we won't have to go to those kinds of crazy measures um, just to get that bit of social connection going again, which is fantastic. There is one little proviso on the back of all of this, and that is, as of today, you have to wear masks when going on public transport. Now, we spoke about the UK and their stance on this for some time. Only really a couple of weeks ago did we even get some clarity on, on what they thought about masks. But now it's mandatory to be on public transport, and I think it makes sense. It really does, Chad. I mean, when I look at what's happening in London, the weirdest thing from our perspective is the lack of masks 
masks that we see yeah. on UK social media. In South Africa, there's masks everywhere and everyone is wearing it everywhere they go. And so it's a bit strange to see our friends across the pond not wearing masks. And so obviously this is a key thing and now it's going to be mandatory on those public transport services. And obviously that's where the majority of people inter interact, right? And, the, and you touch the same surfaces and you yep. breathe the same air and whatnot. So it makes a lot of sense, I think. Absolutely. Well, moving on to the next thing. Last week, we saw a bit of controversy surrounding Winston Churchill and his statue in Westminster that's been vandalized. Now, this week, we've seen a little bit of uncertainty surround this cloud of uncertainty, really, about, about Google. And if you were to specifically Google search the phrase UK prime ministers, the picture of Winston Churchill was not appearing. All of the rest of them were. And uh, they've obviously put out a statement to say that uh, it's just a little glitch. There was nothing deliberate or specific about this. But it's certainly an interesting little thing to see, Barry. It's amazing to me, Chad, how many people ran with the story and kind of yep. ran with the, the, the conspiracy theory that Google are manually editing Winston <laughs> Churchill's face off the internet. Yep. I mean, that to me seems, seems like a crazy conclusion to jump to and it's much more likely that the photo that was being hosted for that thing just had a glitch or the website went down or the link broke or something like that yeah. but obviously people ran with it and, and everyone is very sensitive right now so lots of things run these kind of stories run away with themselves and google had to very quickly come in and say listen guys don't get ahead of yourselves it was just a glitch yeah. it wasn't a manual intervention it kind of reminds me of when Zuckerberg and them went into Senate and, and, and the House of Congress and whatnot. And a lot of those people thought that Google were manually intervening in individual search results, right. not understanding that it's just a huge algorithm that's being like done by AI, right? There's no humans who are actually deciding what shows up. So interesting, I think. Really, really interesting. Well, keeping on the theme of the web uh, and one of our favorite apps to use, Instagram, um, which we've spoken about tonight as well. And they've essentially uh, kind of, I suppose, showed a little bit more of their cards, really. And uh, this wonderful platform of IGTV that came out, uh, I don't know, earlier this year or whenever it was. And we're kind of wondering what the deal is with this IGTV. What differentiates it from, you know, the normal posts on your feed? And, and why have they been kind of transitioning to longer form video? And this past week, they've actually announced that they're going to be introducing monetization uh, for creators. And so essentially, there's now going to be adverts um, on IGTV videos. And also, when it comes to live streams, you can now actually throw what they call badges at creators and uh, I suppose really just to fund uh, these creative journeys that people go on certainly aligning to YouTube a little bit more yeah it's kind of the next step in Instagram's growth right and trying to monetize the huge audience that they have what is strange for me though Chad is that I don't know about your habits but I don't find myself watching much long form video on Instagram 100%. if I see if I see an IGTV video that's, that's longer than three or four minutes I tend to kind of skip those things yep. I, I don't have the same habits that I would on a YouTube or even on a Facebook Facebook. And so I'm wondering, Chad, do you think this is going to actually help Instagram TV because it helps more creators come online and actually make money from it and maybe create a new kind of genre of content? Or do you think it's going to frustrate some of the existing users and kind of uh, take things the other way? What do you think? Yeah, I, th I think I certainly lean towards the, the latter of that argument, Barry. I'm the same as you. And I think that's down to the devices that we're using. Um, I would much rather spend a much longer time um, on YouTube, on my laptop, or even on my Apple TV, for example. Um, and even if you look at something like an iPad, um, which 
to my knowledge, still doesn't have a dedicated Instagram app. Um, it, it certainly, certainly begs the question of how many people are there sitting watching videos longer than, let's say, even 10 minutes. Um, and I do find it a fascinating part of their, their journey and, and strategy, really. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, we'll certainly just have to keep our eyes peeled. I think another key reason for this move is obviously the rise of TikTok, which is kind of the, the new kid on the block, right? And yeah. so much video consumption is happening over there. And so I think Instagram also feeling a little bit of pressure there. They're in the same position when they kind of took over from Facebook and became the dominant social media. Yeah. TikTok is really starting to stake a claim for itself. And especially at the lower demographics that the younger people are really, really migrating there. And there's huge numbers on TikTok right now. Yeah. And so I think this is also a defensive move from Instagram trying to kind of stake their claim in case TikTok starts to challenge them. Absolutely. And uh, I suppose the other tools that TikTok allow you to actually create videos as well, um, definitely make it a compelling place to produce content. Now, moving on to our video platform of choice, that is YouTube. Um, we were very, very delighted about the little change that we saw this week, Barry. Talk us through it. Yeah. So it's a little, it's a new functionality from YouTube called Video Chapters. And so if you're watching this video right now, you should be able to see on the little timeline at the bottom of the video that instead of just seeing one long line with the whole one hour podcast, you should see each chapter to split into different sections, allowing you to click and choose and kind of select which parts of the video you want to go to first. Yeah. Now, this has always been done via timestamps in the comments or in the description. So people have put timestamps so you can go and click on the time to go to the exact moment of the video you want to watch. But now it's gonna be built straight into the actual player itself. And I think, Chad, it's a really slick implementation. It looks really good. It really, it really works well. And it's very simple. As long as you format your timestamps correctly, it automatically will generate them for you and, and put on your video straight away. So what this really helps is for those kind of long videos, things like tutorials, things like podcasts, things like these sorts of things, where viewers might not have the time to sit and watch the whole thing. Yep. But want to pick up on one particular one particular topic or one particular idea, they can go straight there without having to watch the whole video and kind of scrub around and try and find it. So that's a really good thing for user experience. The question I have for Chad is, is what is this going to do to watch time, right? And and obviously YouTube yep. is trying to maximize watch time as much as possible because that's how they make their money. Um, do you think this will adversely affect watch time? And is the trade-off between user experience and watch time worth it? Fascinating question. Um, I, I think it will. The trend over time is really that we we are stretched for time as people. And so we try to cut out as much of the, the garbage really and try to get to the crux of what it is that we want to see, which is strange because we're more than happy to watch a series. We're more than happy to watch a video. But when it comes to these types of, um, I don't know, I suppose personally created videos, we like to kind of cut out through anything that could be regarded as, as, as junk, I suppose. And YouTube's algorithm relies really heavily on, on that watch time. Um, it will look at the percentage of a person's video that they've watched and decide Aside from that, whether it is a video that will be worthwhile recommending to, to other people. Um, and so for me, I'm also interested to see the roll-on effect of that. Um, but I mean, for the fact that we've already had timestamps, I don't know if this is going to increase uptake. Like you said, I think it's really, really slick and I think it looks fantastic. Uh, it certainly, certainly works really well. Um, I, I certainly think in terms of us and our podcast, if you're listening to our podcast and you come across a certain topic that you think would be fantastic to, to actually watch watch us talk, um, that would be an amazing, amazing way to do that where you can just pop onto our video and not have to watch the whole thing. I think it's great, um, but we'll certainly have to see what it does to the to that watch time, Barry. I think another good thing, Chad, that's going to come out of this is increased analytics, right? And like much more precise analytics to be able to tie a topic to watch time. Yeah. And so I'm interested to see what's going to happen to like the YouTube studio backend and that sort of thing. If you're able to pick out which chapters had the watch time, yeah. which chapters had the, has the most kind of engagement. Because that'll also help creators and people making videos figure 
figure out what is actually working and what isn't. Yeah. In your 10-minute video, in your hour podcast, whatever it is, what are the pieces that are really grabbing the audience's attention and how do you kind of capitalize on those? And so what I'm ex expecting, and maybe in the next couple of months we'll, we'll start to see it, is more granular analytics because of these video chapter functionality. And that's going to make things even more interesting for people trying to grow an audience online. Fascinating. It just shows you how introducing something like this can have so many knock-on effects and really can just transform, I suppose, the way YouTube works. The one thing I wonder is whether they'll start recommending segments of videos. Um, I don't know if I'd be too keen on that, to clicking on a video and, you know, being shoved three quarters of the way in. Would you? Yeah, it's a tough one because you you, you want that context, right? Yeah. That one of the one of the best parts about long-form videos or long-form conversations is that you build a relationship or a context with the person who's creating the video. And YouTube has been based on personalities, right? It's been yeah. based on people sharing their authentic selves the good the bad and the ugly and kind of giving you the context as to who they are as people Definitely. and if you're going to skip all of that to go to just the nuggets or just the bullet points or like the spark notes of that video you might lose something and, and so YouTube's got a lot of considerations they have to think about with this kind of functionality what does it do to the culture of the site and what does it do for the revenue on the back end? Absolutely. Fascinating, fascinating discussion. We'll certainly see how it unfolds over time. Now, keeping to the theme of technology and entertainment, uh, but looking at the gaming space, uh, we saw quite an exciting release this week. The PlayStation 5 has been unveiled, and it really looks like it rolled straight off of a Stormtrooper manufacturing chain, Barry. <laughs> I love it. What do you think? I've been loving the memes, Chad, even more so than my thoughts on the actual design. The memes have been amazing. I think that it's one of those things where it kind of reminds me of the Cybertruck reveal where it's a bit of a strange design. They definitely yep. could have gone for something more traditional, more mainstream, but they've obviously tried to make a statement with this design. And like you said, it looks like it comes out of a Star Wars movie, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, really cool. I haven't actually dived too deep into the technical specs of the device, um, but they have differentiated this a little bit in introducing a digital version, which has no drive, um, as well as the standard version, which is still let you go and buy your actual discs, your Blu-ray discs, and all of those kinds of things. And I suppose that's the transition we've been wanting to see for some time. Um, but the fact that they've still kept the devices with the drive certainly make you feel like printed disc media is not dead just yet. Yeah, it's a strange one, right? You, you'd think that they should be dead by now. I mean, I haven't had a CD drive in my computer for years <laughs> now. And uh, I think that gaming is the one space where those CDs and those Blu-ray discs and those DVDs still actually have a place for, for, for some unknown reason, right? And like you say, like to have the both have both of the options is, is really important. I think yeah. that the rise of online gaming and kind of the merging of the online world with the PlayStation or the Xbox world has kind of been a gradual one over time. And it's still not entirely online. You still no. go and buy your relatively expensive game and get your DVD, get your CD and get yeah. it and, and put it into your console and go from there. I think for the loyal fans who've been there through PlayStation 1, 2, 3 and 4, it must be quite a comfort to know that you can still play your old games in the console, right? Yeah. You're not losing that drive entirely. And uh, obviously they're trying to push people online because it makes a lot more sense from logistics and distribution and cost-wise, but at least your, your games that you've kind of collected over the years, you're still going to be able to play your favorite ones. Absolutely. I'm fascinated to see as an experiment whether the uptake is going to be as high as what potentially they think. Um, I mean, if for me, if you could replace that... Uh 
pretty big, I suppose, uh, you know, disk drive reader with uh, an equally sized hard drive. You'd be able to shove a whole lot more space in there. Um, and, you know, with the speeds of internet these days, um, it certainly seems like the one that I would be getting um, if I was going to go that way. But Barry, you can be very happy to know that I recently bought the PlayStation 4 Pro, so I have no justification to upgrade on this front. Chad, I've heard that story before, and I'm going to withhold my judgment for a couple of months and see what uh, <laughs> Chad the Gadget Guy gets up to. Well, let's then move on to our next one. Stuff I found interesting. All right, and stuff I found interesting, we're going to start with something we teased last week. We chatted briefly about the Michael Jordan documentary last week. And since then, I've finished all 10 parts, Chad, awesome. and I've finally got to the end, and now I can finally share some of my thoughts. The documentary is called The Last Dance, and it's a Netflix original series. It's looking at this, the story of Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls, who won six championships right in kind of his peak. And it's an amazing documentary because it really takes you behind the scenes, into the locker room, into the training grounds, and gives you a sense of Michael Jordan as a basketball player. We chatted a little bit about last week is that he was one of those names that transcends the sport. For example, someone like myself, I don't watch basketball, I don't yeah. know it that well, I don't really follow any of it, but I know the name Michael Jordan. And I feel like that's the same for a lot of people around the world. It's one of those sports names that really transcends the sport. And the reason was he became an icon, right? He became an icon of culture and an icon of kind of America for that time. And what he did for the NBA as a, as a sport and as a kind of an organization was incredible. They were saying that before Michael Jordan played, I think the NBA was shown in like 20-something countries around the world. After Michael Jordan, it was like something like 80 countries around the world. Insane. So he really brought the world to the NBA and really like was the first big superstar and, and still is considered the greatest that has ever played the sport. And what's really cool is you see all these amazing players, kind of the LeBron Jameses, the Kobe Bryants, all these amazing players of today talking about how much they admire and, and really think that Michael Jordan was the best ever. So it's not even in debate. It's not, it's not one of those things where they're comparing eras. He really yeah. is the best player ever. So let's dig into the, the, the actual themes now. And the first theme that kind of came out for me was his work ethic. He worked harder than anybody else because he wanted to win so badly. One of the key characteristics of his personality that they kind of talk through the documentary is his competitiveness okay. and his wanting to win at all costs and wanting to win absolutely everything. It's not just basketball. When he's gambling, when he's playing cards in, in okay. the bus, when he's kind of, they, at one stage they were throwing a game where they were trying to land a, a coin closest to the wall and he was betting against the security guards he was playing with wow. like two hours before a game. He's just one of those people who wants to win at everything. And he knows how to win things. He understood it wasn't just the will, it wasn't just the kind of the work ethic. He knew what to do. He knew how to practice deliberately, how to get the best out of his teammates, how to work properly with his coach and with his teams. And he really was an absolute winner. He knew how to win basketball games and knew how to win championships. And to watch that is super inspiring no matter what the sport, right? You don't have to enjoy basketball to be inspired by that kind of work ethic and that competitiveness to really go out and get what you want. Of course, the, the other side of that is if you're going to be in that kind of position with that sort of personality, you can't be a nice guy. That just Those things yeah. don't work. And we've seen that a lot with people like Steve Jobs and people like Elon Musk. And these guys are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible. There is a dark side and there is a negative part in the way that they treat the people around them because they are so desperate to win. And sometimes that comes off in bad ways, right? If you don't know Michael Jordan like that and you don't kind of have that understanding that it's not personal against you, he's just so desperate to win, it can come across as, a, as, as not a good kind of personality and kind of a, kind of a dick, to be honest. Um, and so that, that balance was very interesting to watch and the balance between what it takes to actually win six championships and what you have to sacrifice in order to get there. 
Fascinating, fascinating. And uh, I, like you, Barry, uh, previously have not watched much basketball. Um, I would be fascinated to watch this documentary. And I suppose the reason that I'm keen is all of this behind-the-scenes footage. A lot of the time with these documentaries, they put in a lot of fillers from people who knew the person. And, you know, they kind of use what they have, I suppose, to, to put a compelling story and a compelling narrative together. But the fact that there is this footage, which sounds like it is, uh, you know, really, really good quality and uh, captures the authentic Michael Jordan at his peak um, really makes it quite compelling to go and watch. Chad, that's exactly why I think it's one of the greatest documentaries of all time is because I don't understand how they got this footage. I don't <laughs> understand. They must have let an entire film crew have full access to his entire life, to every practice, to every game, to the locker rooms. It's amazing the level of coverage they had. And what, the, what, what that enables them to do is have real cinematic footage, both on the court and off the court, to weave into the narrative. So they can play with chronology and timelines. Yeah. They can kind of bring interviews in and kind of weave them into the real games. And you get a sense that you really are watching Watching his career because you're not just hearing interviews about him playing you're seeing him play and you're seeing him talk to his teammates and fight with his coaches and all that good stuff so it really is an amazing use of the footage that they had and it's beautifully shot like it's absolutely beautiful documentary a 10-part series and so even if you don't enjoy basketball even if you're not a fan of michael jordan from a pure cinematic kind of film kind of world chad you would love this oh that does sound really really good um I, I certainly have to get it onto my, my watch list now you've spoken us through some of the things you've Learned, but I suppose these are things that you could kind of read between the lines, I guess, anyway, from a high-performing, uh, highly successful um, athlete. But what were some of the other things that maybe needed a little bit of deeper diving to find out about him? I think what was, what was important for me was kind of his relationship with the media, right? So he was a superstar and the media were all over him. And this was pre-social media. So it's, I'm assuming it's even worse today with Twitter and all of these yeah. things. But he would leave his hotel room, leave the game, whatever, and he'd have hundreds of people shoving cameras in his faces, asking him very personal questions all of the time. And one of the reasons that he had a, like a retirement halfway through his career was because the media was so overwhelming and kind of got in the way of his real life. He wasn't able to be himself and actually be a normal human being. And so I think we've seen a kind of a, a trend with a lot of famous people. You get to, you, when you watch these documentaries, you get the sense that maybe I don't want to be as famous as these people because yeah. what you have to give up in order to do that is crazy. He wasn't able to leave his hotel room. He wasn't able to go out to kind of walk through a park or go to a shop or any of that stuff. Yeah. And watching the impacts of that on his, on his psychological kind of well-being and his mental health was very interesting for me. I think that we often look at fame as like, oh, they've got it all sorted out. They know exactly what they're doing. They've got all the money in the world. They've got nothing yeah. to complain about. But the perils of fame is what really comes to this documentary as well. He was the most famous person in America at the time. He was kind of the superstar. And that comes with a lot of sacrifice, a lot of kind of pressure. Everything he did wrong, everything he said that was slightly off, everything when he would go and gamble and play golf with his friends, everything was hyper-analyzed. And newspapers would run away with stories as they do. And it really takes a toll on him. Yeah. And being able to see into his world and really get his honest perspective as to how this is affecting him really made me rethink what fame is. Yeah, it's a easy trap to fall in, I suppose, for, for a lot of us, where we look at fame as this incredible, incredible, um, you know, proposition. But you're right, there is certainly another side to that coin, and one that can certainly ruin lives as well. One last thing, Chad, I wanted to bring up, which kind of speaks to the kind of person that Michael Jordan is, and it's something I didn't know, but I think if you were a basketball fan, you probably would know, that when he retired in the middle of his career, he decided he was going to go and play baseball. 
And he decided, yeah. I'm going to put basketball aside and I'm going to go and try and make it in the Major League Baseball. So he went to a Major League team. He kind of signed up. He went into the, the kind of the, the amateur league, like a one below the Major League, and played, I think, a season and a half of baseball. Sure. And all of a sudden became the biggest star in baseball because he was Michael Jordan. And so they had these tiny, tiny, like little league grounds, which held like a few thousand <laughs> people. And all of a sudden they were sold out because Michael Jordan was playing baseball. Wow. The reason that he did this was because he had just won three basketball championships and kind of won and won MVP and did everything he could in that basketball world. And he was needing a challenge. And his competitive nature, he had played baseball at school and he thought himself he was quite decent. So he's like, I'm going to go and start again. And to go and start again from the beginning and try and make it as a baseball player really shows you the kind of person that he is. Eventually, he came back to basketball because he realized that basketball was where his true superstardom like, was. But he was a very good baseball player and he really like showed that he is a supreme athlete and someone that is willing to kind of put basketball aside and just take on a new challenge. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that does say a heck of a lot about his character. And, uh, and I suppose for a lot of people, making it in one field just doesn't feel like enough. Uh, like you said, you he kind of wants to constantly be challenged. And I kind of see myself as a similar type of personality, to be honest. Whenever I kind of max out at a particular skill, I'm on to the next thing. And uh, I wonder if that's a good thing. I wonder if it's a bad thing. Certainly, it sounds like there's some good character traits to take from it. Yeah, definitely. There's pros and cons with all of these things. And there's trade-offs that you make. And uh, there's obviously the risk that you end up chasing lots of shiny new objects. And you don't yeah. kind of stick with the one thing you want to get really, really good at. But at the same time, being able to have multiple different skills you can kind of weave together in unique ways makes you a more powerful human being in other contexts. And so it really is one of those things you have to understand yourself, yep. understand what makes you tick and like what really matters to you, and then live authentically in that. Don't yep. try and look at someone else who's maybe decided to specialize in one thing and decide, oh, maybe that's the right strategy. Like have the self-awareness to understand what kind of person that you are yep. and then go full steam ahead on that. Absolutely. Thanks, Barry. What else did you find interesting this week? Yeah, so this interesting is probably not the right term. Um, <laughs> what I find infuriating, and that's why oh, I right. wanted to bring it up, because uh, this is one of the things that makes me irrationally angry. You know those things, Chad? We all have those little pet peeves <laughs> that make us way angrier than we should be. And this is one of mine. Okay. It's something called multi-level marketing. And uh, if you haven't heard the term, you've definitely heard some of the companies that have done it. People like Amway or Herbalife, etc. Right, right. And the idea here is that a multi-level marketing company is basically a pyramid scheme yep. in disguise. Right? So what they tell you is that, Chad, you're going to become an entrepreneur, you're going to be run your business from home, there's going to be lots of passive income, all of yep. this good stuff. But actually all you're doing is becoming a salesperson for them. And your job is to sell products to people that you know yep. because you earn commission on every sale that you make. The dodgy part about this is because the way these things are set up, the actual incentive is not actually to sell the products, but actually to recruit people to join the company. Because yep. how it works is you join, you create like a downline underneath yep. you, and then you earn a piece of commission for every person that is selling underneath in your team or in your kind of squad, right? Yep. And so your incentive is to recruit, recruit, recruit. And that's how these things grow in kind of a viral fashion. The company makes all of its revenue from these kind of commission bases. And unfortunately, only the people at the very top make the money the vast majority unfortunately lose their money. And there's been some reports that show that up to 99% of people in these schemes don't make any money. Oh, wow. So unfortunately, it really is a pyramid scheme in disguise. And 
I, I really get frustrated because they really do, they steal money basically. It's, it's, it's defrauding people out of their well-earned savings. Yeah. So what I wanted to bring up was there's a brand new one on the block and I've started to see the murmurings. I've started <laughs> to see the virality. It's something called Crowd One. Okay. And in South Africa, I was looking at their Facebook group. They've already got 45,000 people in that Facebook group. So they're growing super fast, right? And I understand exactly why it's working right now. People are quite desperate at the moment. Yeah. A lot of people lost their jobs. They're looking for extra income. They're looking for this kind of stuff. Um, and unfortunately, these sorts of programs prey on that hope they prey on that desperation and, and that people who aren't necessarily financially literate yep. or maybe not even financially literate just haven't thought deeply enough as to what is the actual proposition here like is this something I should be getting into um, because I've seen it myself is I've, I've gone to a few of these events when, when a friend has invited me and yep. not told me what it was about and you get there and you're like oh no not one of these again <laughs> Um, and I was amazed at those events of how many smart people are there, yeah. right? Doctors and lawyers and engineers and all this good stuff who get sucked into the marketing because they really are expert marketers and they know exactly how to play on your psychology as yeah. an individual to kind of tell you the story about how you're going to make millions and millions of dollars in the next couple of months by selling online products or skincare or like uh, protein supplements or whatever it is. Um, and so I just thought I'd bring this up because um, I know Crowd1 is getting some some hype at the moment. Uh, please, all of our listeners, stay away from this kind of stuff. Uh, I think the, the common adage that really sticks out for me is that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. It probably is indeed. And I'm really, really glad that you brought this up and put this here because, Barry, we share one of our pet peeves. Um, and to be honest, a lot of people, like you said, 99% of people are, are losing money personal money but a lot of those people are losing friends as well and that for me is insane i like you have been uh, taken to these events in one occasion i was even paid somebody paid me to go to this event and as soon as i sat down and saw these people kind of crowding around me felt really really uncomfortable um and you know it's almost like you have to fight your way out of those types of situations and it, it really is just so unnecessary um you're going to lose friendships in my mind um if you if you do it in a way that you're not sort of conscious of and so if in any business venture the only thing that you're bringing to the table is your network of people you know it probably, like Barry says, is not a great idea. And aside from getting you really excited at all the glitzy, you know, fantastic things that could potentially have, I mean, some of these things say you could be driving a Ferrari if you get to a certain tier. Um, there's a lot of ifs on those kinds of things. And I think, like you said, they're expert marketers. They, they get you into that into that mode of it's possible you can do this anyone can do this oh look at jill down there she did it she's driving uh, x car from getting to x tier um so i'm really glad that you brought this up barry and and so all we're saying here is give it some deep thought before entering into any one of these kinds of things especially when your chips are down at the moment yeah without a doubt understand that you that you're in a situation psychologically maybe where you're looking for money yeah. and when you're looking for money there are lots of, lots of scamsters out there who will take advantage of that and all it takes is a little bit of research all it takes is a little bit of research on Google, reading some reviews and like talking to people who know what they're talking about, yeah. and you'll realize the scams very, very quickly. I think for a lot of us, we don't do our research because we get carried away with how amazing it all sounds, and it sounds like an incredible way to build wealth and whatnot. Yeah. But if, if it seems too good to be true, please do your research, right? And it's really, really important. I don't want to see people that I care about and listeners of this podcast yeah. throwing money down these down these chutes because yeah, it makes me irrationally angry because <laughs> they prey on the wrong kind of people That's and true. we want you to be kind of skeptical of these things and really do your research properly before you make any kind of investment decisions 100% let's move on to our next segment develop and grow 
This week on Develop and Grow, Chad, we're going to start with a book that I'm currently reading. So I can't talk to the book as a whole just yet, but it's going really well so far. It's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he is a psychologist, I want to put one of the famous psychologists who's talking about biases in our thinking and how we think clearly, how do we think better, and what gets in the way of clear thinking. And so what I thought was an interesting quote that I'll pull out, and I'll read the quote now. If a satisfactory answer to a hard question is not found quickly, our brain will find a related question that is easier and answer that one. Okay. And when I think that everyone understands that concept. We've seen politicians and people getting interviewed online or on, on, on TV or on, on news and whatnot. They get asked a difficult question, <laughs> and instead of answering that question, they ignore it completely and answer a different question. Yeah. And so this is kind of more internal, thinking about how our own brain works when there's not someone with a microphone in your face, but just the questions you ask yourself. And sometimes we, we, we kind of, because we want to take the path of least resistance, our brain wants to be as lazy as it can. We don't want to do the difficult thinking sometimes we end up answering different questions without realizing it. And so I thought, Chad, I'd bring up some examples to kind of show you the point and maybe give you a sense as to what I'm talking about. And then we can chat awesome. about how do, we, how do we help ourselves in the situation. So here are some questions that someone might pose to you and your brain might answer a different question. Actual question. How much would you contribute to save an endangered species? Right? It's a difficult question. Yeah. What your brain might answer is, how much emotion do I feel when I think of dying dolphins? This comes up in charity a lot. It's like when someone yeah. shows you a picture of a starving child in Africa, that emotion dictates how much money you contribute. And so if you, if you were to see a stat that says 10,000 children, it's not as emotionally compelling as that picture of one child. And so that's kind of a, an example of an easier question our brain will look to answer. Second one, how happy are you with your life these days? And the question our brain normally answers is, what is my mood right now? <laughs> right. So if I'm in a bad mood right now, my life is terrible and everything's going against me and like I'm, uh, the world's moving yeah. against me. If I'm feeling good right now, all of a sudden everything's optimistic and everything's going forward. And that's not a fair representation of your entire life, right? And how, how everything is working. Yep. Your current mood is not that representation. Yep. So again, it's a, it's a question that's easier to answer than how happy am I really? The next question, how popular will the president be six months from now? Now, instead of doing the analytics and the looking at the polls and whatnot, our brain just goes immediately to how popular is the president right now? And that's an easier question to answer. And so we go there. The next one, how should financial advisors who prey on the elderly be punished? Speaking about our multi-level marketers, how should they be punished? And instead of looking at the pros and cons of those things and looking at how punishments should work, instead our brain answers, how much anger do I feel when I think about these financial predators? Right? Again, an emotional response. And the last one, this woman is running for the primary. How far will she go in politics? And the question we actually talk about or think about, even though we don't like to admit it, is does this woman look like a political winner? is our first our first judgment, judging that book by that cover, do, does she look like she's going to win this election? And so those are examples of how we get lazy in our thinking. We don't take the time to really think these questions through. We give this gut response. And I think it's important that we realize we have that intuition, we have that gut response, and be willing to be patient and not just splurt out the first thing that comes to mind and actually spend some time thinking about it. Because when we start to think about it, we can actually unlock the right answer or a better answer or a more nuanced answer. But if we let our brain be lazy and just answer an easier question rather than the actual question, we get ourselves into trouble. 
I love it. I think it's fantastic. And I, I love the fact that the more people study the way our brains work, the more we can actually recondition them, um, which really sounds silly, but it, it's important. Like you said, sometimes you don't even realize um, how you just take the easiest answer and don't actually answer the question at all. This is the particular reason why I find the interview question of explain to me your thought process of, for, for example, some random abstract question, like how many tennis balls could you fit into a airplane and uh, that kind of thing for me immediately gets to all of these smaller easier questions that eventually you kind of rationalize them all together um, to ultimately get to your answer but that initial answer is really hard and so I think I, I think it's fantastic to actually understand as an experiment really how our brain works and and just to notice that this is happening um, and then adjust accordingly yeah I think it's a major takeaway from this book is and he kind of he calls it system one thinking and system two thinking so he kind of differentiates between the two and system one is that intuitive gut feeling, that first answer that comes to mind. And that's obviously very fast, it's very impactful, but it's often driven by emotion or by stereotypes or by kind of your past experience. We also have system two, which is that ability as humans to think more deeply about things and to ponder different pros and cons and weigh up controversial ideas and kind of look at things that contradict each other and then make a more reasoned decision. And so you need both of them. You need both the fast thinking, the gut feel, the intuition, but you also have to be able to do the hard of thinking and the trick of course is always to know when to use it and what system to use for what kinds of things and the more we understand about our brain like you say the more we figure out cool this is a system one task or this is a system two task we'll be able to perform better in the world and just be clearer thinkers in general Absolutely. Well, I'm dead keen for you to actually finish the book and, and let me know some of the other insights that you get from it, because um, I'm sure I've heard about the title. I'm dead keen to hear more about it. One of the questions that is really difficult that gets thrown at us a lot of the time is, what is your purpose? And that is a really hard question to answer. Now, you've seen a little tidbit this week that talks to that point. Talk us through it. Yeah, it's a quote that I came across. I uh, can't remember where exactly, but I found this quote and it really spoke to me. And so I just thought I'd read it out and keep it very short and sweet. It's by a writer called Orion Mountain Dreamer. I thought it's an amazing okay. name. It's a really cool name for a writer. Um, and the quote goes like this. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for. And if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love for your dreams, or for the adventure of being alive. And that quote really speaks to me is because I want everyone's, I want this world to be filled with people who dare to dream, right? Who chase their dreams regardless of what they look like and, and risk being a fool. Like stay yeah. weird, stay unique and follow your own curiosities. Do what makes you happy. Not what your parents want, not what your society wants, etc. And be willing to follow those dreams and not let money be the deciding factor in all of your decisions, right? So I think this quote really speaks to me and I hope it speaks to you as well. We hope that Across the Pond is one of those spaces where you, yeah. we are able to dream and think about these things and and not make the decision based purely on money. Definitely. But what do you actually ache for? That, that word of purpose is what gets you up in the morning? What are you really excited about? And how do you center your life around those things? Understanding the realities of life, of course, and the practicalities. But actually daring to dream about the things that you're really excited about and building a life that's fulfilling. It's so important, Barry, but it's a lot of the time pretty hard. It's hard to block out what the world thinks of you or what the world thinks of what your dream is. But now that you bring this quote to me, it actually brings to mind a very recent experience that I actually had yesterday yesterday. 
When I was in the park, in Hyde Park, in a very busy park, it was a fantastic, wonderful day. Everyone was sitting there with their friends, socially distanced, of course. And out in the distance, you've got this guy running up and down, um, really, really randomly, I'll be honest, in a black <laughs> suit, which had blue accents, with his blue ribbon, doing ribbon dancing. And not just for 10 minutes, he literally did it for the whole day. And in his mind, he was not in the park. There were no people around him. He was in an arena and he was in the zone and he was prancing and standing and flicking this ribbon and jumping and literally had all of the sort of facial expressions you'd expect in, in that kind of circumstance. And although we did laugh initially and it was really funny, I turned to my friends and I said, I wish I could not care about what people think as much as this dude does. And he's got it. He's really got it. He's found it. Um, and so as much as we had a giggle initially and as much as it looked ridiculous, I love the fact that there are people out there who just don't care. Um, and I need to take a page from his book. That's such a cool story. That That is true freedom, right? That yep. is true freedom. To, to be someone like that and to be in that space where you're so comfortable with who you are and what yep. makes you happy that you're willing to look like a fool in front of other people. Yep. And there's so much we can learn from those people. We spend so much of our lives worried about what other people think about us. We worry about what they see of us. We try and put on this mask of the person we think they want us to be. Yep. Instead of just being our true authentic selves, instead of just being weird, like commit to being weird. Like I really want people to do that. Commit to being weird. Being yeah. weird is fun. Being weird is awesome. And it, it really shows you're authentically being yourself. And even though sometimes people might laugh at you, people might hate on you, you might get some get some not so good feedback, <laughs> you got to let that kind of drift away and kind of put that aside and really focus on, on yourself. Because at the end of the day, what matters is that you are fulfilling your own journey. You are on the right path for yourself. And uh, I hope that as across the pond, as listeners and as me and you, Chad, we can yeah. really keep being authentic to ourselves and keep following our curiosities and do the stuff that makes you happy, please. <laughs> Absolutely. And that doesn't mean, um, you know, overnight, stop doing the stuff that, that keeps you going, stop, the, stop doing the stuff that uh, pays the bills. But it does mean that you should not just close off those doors that, uh, you know, you've got those inner yearns that you have to do these kinds of things, follow them, do them. Um, and yeah, hopefully that leads to a more meaningful life as a whole. Barry, I don't know about you, but I feel like this episode was fantastic from top to bottom. We covered a heck of a lot of amazing stuff and I had such a good time doing it. Um, really, really do enjoy our hourly chats every week. Definitely. It's been a really good episode. I've, I've re I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. I think Simon was amazing at the, at the top yeah. of the episode and then chatting about lots of cool stuff going down. So as always, I'm loving this process and I'm loving the feedback we're getting. Thank you so much for people listening and watching. We really do appreciate you, especially in this quarantine time. We really do. And uh, we look forward to bringing you a better show every single week. We're slowly getting better and better and better. <laughs> and uh, we love hearing from you guys. So please reach out. If you are listening, if you made it this far, you're a champion. And uh, we'll see you next week. Home, across the pond.